Let's open to 1 John chapter 3, if you would. And uh, in our study this evening, we're once again in this third chapter in verse number 19, in which we have been discussing this wonderful doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And this is the third message that we've had on this subject. If you wonder, why is it I preach so many multi-part messages? Well, the truth is, uh, they're intended to be one message. But I get started, and there's just so much material to cover that they end up being two parts, three parts, four parts, and so on and so on, just because there's just so much information that I want to give you. So that's how I end up with all these multi-part messages. But the doctrine of the assurance of salvation is really one of my favorites, and it kind of ties into what I'm just talking about here just a moment ago. It's one of my favorites because it is a defining doctrine for Baptists. Now, there are other people that hold to the doctrine of eternal security, assurance of your salvation, but none of them has the antiquity on this issue that the Baptist church has. The the history of Baptists on this issue go back way before the Reformation period, before the Roman Catholic Church, all the way back to the time of Jesus and the apostles. And so there have always been these churches of like faith and order to... I guess you would call it our stripe of Baptist churches. There have always been those churches because Jesus promised that his church would be in the world. From the time that he started it until the time that he comes again, Jesus would have his true church in the world. Recently, I was reading an article in um, one of the Baptist papers, and this is one that's printed in Florida, and they are also independent Baptists of some stripe. I don't know the church myself uh, that puts out this paper, But one of the things that they wrote in the paper this past month was that there is no unbroken link between the Baptist church of today and the churches that were in the first century. And I would agree with that to this extent, that there is no written history of that. Uh, I don't think that there's one church that can trace itself link by link by link over the past 2,000 years and end up at the first church at Jerusalem. We're just not able to do that uh, with, the, with the records that we have. But this particular author implied that succession of, like, of churches of like faith and order was not a necessity and may not even, or implied that, it, that, uh, that actually the church could cease to exist and then someone could come along and pick up a Bible and just read it and start the church all over again. I maintain that cannot be true because the gospel is committed to the Lord's church. And there always has to be a true church in the world in order for the gospel to be perpetuated. And Jesus promised that it would be. And so I have issues with people who would say that the church could go out of existence or say that there hasn't always been a link of true churches, whether we can prove it by history or not, that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. Now, I certainly do know this, that there was the name Baptist Church on top of all the churches or some church that goes back to the time of Christ because Jesus did not name the church. Uh, The church, uh, we named ourselves Baptist or our enemies named us Baptist at a much later time. But the fact that you can't find the name Baptist over all those centuries does not mean that there hasn't been a true church of like faith and order that teaches the same doctrines that we teach. That has always been in existence. And um, more often than not, over the past 2,000 years, the, the, the true church of God has been severely persecuted. Uh, pagans persecuted it, false Christians persecuted it. 
uh, persecuted the church. And so many times the church was hidden so that you can't locate it in any one particular place, but we know it was there because the doctrines have survived. We've still got those doctrines today. So we firmly do believe that, that these uh, churches that started there, uh, the, the first church in Jerusalem that went out and sent the gospel out to other places around the world, uh, that same doctrine they taught is still the doctrine that we teach today. And so the assurance of salvation is a part of the antiquity of Baptist churches, and Baptist churches have been the chief proponent of it. Now, there are opponents to the doctrine, such as the Roman Catholic Church and others who follow their uh, semi-Pelagian or Arminian beliefs, and they will tell you that salvation is not assured. And the Roman Catholic Church goes even further to say that if you believe that you are eternally saved, then you ought to be cursed for believing it. But the Roman Catholic Church has a vested interest in keeping or denying that doctrine or destroying the doctrine, and that's because they believe and teach that salvation is in the church. And so uh, they keep people enslaved to Roman Catholicism because they teach that they control the eternal destiny of men on this side of the grave and on the other side of the grave. So I say they have a vested interest in this to keep people from believing in eternal security. Well, the issue is, can it be certainly known that we are truly, that our salvation is is truly real and that we are assured that we are, when we die, that we're going to go to heaven? Uh, Is that a fact that's taught in the Bible? And if it's not, if it's a moot point, then we don't need one message on this and we don't need three messages on it. We don't need a dozen messages on it. We don't need to talk about it at all. If you can't find eternal security in the Bible, then we don't need to preach about it. But this is why we go to the Scriptures. So we're going to see what John has to say about it. And we've been using just one verse of Scripture as a springboard into this larger discussion, and that's verse number 19. John says, Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And if there is no doctrine of assurance in the Bible, what is the point of John making this statement? And further, why would John write what he he writes in in the fifth chapter in verse number 13 when he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. If we can't really know that we're saved, then John didn't need to write that verse. But in fact, John states it there in that fifth chapter in the 13th verse, as being the purpose for writing this letter, that you might know that you have eternal life. So we can know that we have it, and we can have that assurance right here and now. And for John's people that he's writing to and for us today, that is great comfort to our hearts. When there is so much trouble in the world, when there's so much going on around us, when we're faced with so many problems, this is the thing that you can hold on to you can know that you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. And if that doesn't help you through the bad times, I don't know what will. Well, in these multi-part messages, sometimes it gets a little bit difficult for me to to uh, go on to new material because I kind of have to keep the flow going. So we back up and we backtrack some and talk about what we talked about before. 
But tonight I'm not going to do very much backtracking. I've just got too much that I want to say. So all I'm going to do is just remind you of some material that we've been over. Uh, On your listening sheet, your, your first point there is the problematic factors of assurance. And I suppose the most uh, succinct way, the simplest way that I could state this to you without going into detail is the real problem of our assurance is that we are up against God. We're up against God himself. We're up against his righteousness, his holiness, his law, against his punishment, uh, against the awareness of every single moment of our lives. God sees and knows everything we do. He knows about everything that we think. And unless all of those issues are taken care of, and unless God is satisfied in all of those areas, we can't have assurance. But the fact is that God is satisfied in all of those areas. And that's because of the work that Christ has done for us. Christ satisfied God's righteousness for our sin. He makes us holy before God. He he kept God's law perfectly for us. He took the punishment that was due us. He bore our sins on the cross. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as hopelessly broken sinners, but instead he looks at us as being mended by the righteousness of Christ. So these are all problems. And if we have to deal with those problems, then we could never be assured. So we have the problematic factors of assurance, but then on the other hand, we have the persuasive facts of assurance. And in our last study, we started looking at some of those facts. What are the facts of assurance? Well, the first one is that salvation is permanent. The Bible teaches salvation is permanent. And if salvation is not permanent, then we don't have any basis for assurance. And we would live in fear every single day that we would do something, maybe even something we don't know about, that would cause us to lose our salvation. So this is where we left off last time. I gave you three scriptural arguments for the permanency of salvation. The first one is the purpose of salvation. And the purpose of it is for God to call out a people for his name and then to take those people and make them like Christ. His purpose is to change us from what we were to what he wants us to be. And God is determined enough in that purpose to present us holy and unblameable before him. He is determined enough that we looked in Romans chapter 8 and we saw there that God has taken care of every possibility. He's taken everything into consideration, every conceivable obstacle that could be thrown at us. And God has taken care of it all, taken it out of our way conquered all of it. So if we can lose our salvation, that means that God has failed in his purpose. And for whatever reason we, we might lose it, whatever the opposition might be, that opposition is stronger than God. It means God can't keep us. Well, that's not what the scripture teaches. Number two is the promise of eternal life. And we looked at multiple scriptures that teach that God gives only one kind of life to his people, and that is eternal life. And it is a present possession. At the very moment that you trust Christ, you have passed from death into life, and that is eternal life. So we looked at John chapter 6 and verses 35 through 47. There we found nine different statements in just one passage concerning the permanency of salvation in giving us the promise of eternal life. Thirdly, we talked about the provision for life. Christ sustains us with soul food. And I don't mean something that you get from Motown or something like that. I mean, he sustains us with food for our souls because he satisfies our spiritual hunger and thirst. 
He lives inside of us. He, it's his life within us. He is a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So those are three ways that salvation is permanent. Now, I left one other one here for tonight on this particular issue, on the salvation is permanent, and that is number four, which is the predestination to life. And this is found in the eternal purpose of God. Salvation was God's intent before the world ever began. And in the argument for eternal security, this is really the very best argument of all. This is the foundational argument. But it's the one, unfortunately, that gets left on the table because there are so many people that deny what the Scriptures so clearly teach. And I've been over this so many times that there are some of you that may think, well, that's all he knows. That's the only thing he knows about the Bible. My wife has always complained about this. She says, that's in every doctrine, that doctrine's in every sermon that you preach. Well, it's not, but close, because it is such a major theme, and it, it, it touches on so many minor themes that it's hard not to talk about this because it stares you in the face with so many scriptures in the Bible. I mean, uh, so many minor themes, so many major themes will bring you face to face, and so you have to deal with this. If you believe in God's providence, if you believe in God's purpose, if you believe in God's sovereignty, if you believe in God's omniscience, then you are going to be confronted with this doctrine, and you've got to do something with it. The Bible teaches it. So I've preached about it many times, and we've been over it extensively uh, in the Ephesians series, in the Philippians series, in the Gospel of John series, in the Revelation series. I've talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, so I'm not going to pound you with it all over again tonight. Christopher Ness, who died in 1705, said this, There can be no more a new thought, a new intent, or a new purpose in God than there can be a new God. And his reasoning is very clear on this, that if God saves anyone, it means that he always intended to save them. God never changes directions. He's never dependent upon our actions before he acts. And that really ought to be understandable to us, because if there is a change in God, it has to be a change from a worse position to a better, or from a better position to a worse, or maybe a lateral change, well, God is an immutable God, according to the Scripture. And so uh, the Bible teaches that since he is immutable, that a salvation of a person in time can only be because that was God's intent in eternity. And that's, I don't think, very hard to grasp. Election and predestination are simply declarations of God's intent. And God always does what he intends to do. Now, there are numerous passages that I can give you on this. As I said, we've been over it many times, but let me just read a few to you, and then we'll go on in just a moment. Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Romans 8, 29 and 30, you know these well. For whom he did for know, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans 9:11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And in the 16th verse of the same chapter, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. 
Ephesians 1.4, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And then 1 Peter 1, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit under the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. And that's just a few of many, 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 many more that I could read. Now, the point of all of that is that if God has predestined salvation from eternity past, and God is an immutable God, then eternal salvation means that our predestination has infallibly guaranteed our salvation forever. Our salvation is guaranteed if God predestines it. If God predestines us to be saved, then that predestined must be to an eternal salvation. Otherwise, if you lose it, then God must have predestined you to lose it. And in that kind of a system, predestination makes no sense at all. So we know that God has predestinated us to eternal life. Now, that's where, though, some of the strongest proponents of eternal security keep this very best argument hidden. Now, Arminians will deny eternal security. They don't believe in eternal security. And at the same time, they deny eternal election uh, because they know that those things go together. And... If you take the scriptures that are very clear on election and use those in the arguments for eternal security, then an Arminian is un- unquestionably lost. He has unquestionably lost the battle on eternal security if election is true. Now, the framers of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742, which is the oldest Baptist confession of faith in America, uh, and this is the one that gives the historical apostolic viewpoint of Baptist. Uh, they wrote on this subject, and they said, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. Now, you read that statement, and there are actually five or more arguments in just this one statement on the permanency of salvation. But but you notice here where they start, and the foundational reason that they use for this, they said it depends on the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Now, where would you think that they grounded such a statement as that? Well, I can tell you, if you get a chance to get your hands on a copy of this Confession of Faith, it'll also give you the Scripture references for every statement that they make. And they used Romans 8.30, Romans 9.11, and Romans 9.16, and they could have used all the other Scriptures that I gave you tonight. So here is the very best argument that can be used on the permanency of salvation. If God has predestined it, then it must come to pass. Now, the Philadelphia Confession also states, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, of his own will, rather, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Well, moving on concerning the persuasive facts of assurance, salvation is permanent. And the next reason that 
we can, are persuaded of this is that the Spirit will perform. Now, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Philippians 1, 6, which says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. As we look at that Scripture, the first thing that we have to do is establish what is the good work that Paul is speaking of, and then who is the one that begins it. Well, Philippians 1, 6 is, is, is an interesting verse, and there are various opinions about what Paul means about the good work. Some say that he's referring to the financial support that the Philippian church gave him, and he commended them in the previous verses for how they had supported his ministry. And then some believe that what Paul means is the preaching of the gospel. And in the preceding verses, he talks about the fellowship of the gospel and the financial support that they gave him obviously helped him to take the gospel to different parts of the world, so they helped him in his ministry. But what Paul means here is actually found in the verse itself. In the sixth verse, it says, He which hath begun a good work in you. And that word that's translated begun is only used two times in the Scripture. The other time is in Galatians 3, verse number 3. And there, Paul is arguing that our salvation was begun in the Spirit. In Galatians 3, 3, he says, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so in Philippians 1, verse 6, he must be referring to salvation. And he says there in Philippians 1, 6, that this good work will be performed until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, the day of Jesus Christ? Well, that's a phrase that's equal to saying that it will be until the judgment that this good work will be in you and it will preserve you under the judgment. Now, of course, the judgment is beyond this life. And so that takes them from the point that they receive Christ as Savior all the way to their death and then to the judgment. And that's another guarantee that salvation can't be lost. That good work will continue. Well, who is it then that began the work and who will continue to perform it? We've already read that in Galatians 3, verse 3, where it says, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So it is the Holy Spirit that begins this work, and the Spirit is active in continuing that work, and he will perform it under the day of judgment. In John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he talks about how the Holy Spirit regenerates, and he does that, in a secret work that's imperceptible to the natural senses. In John 3, verse number 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So we see it is the Spirit that begins the work, and the Holy Spirit stays with the Christian, continually living in him. And this is what Jesus told the apostles prior to the crucifixion. John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. 
And so there we have it straight from the lips of Christ. If you believe in him, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. And then Paul followed that up in the scripture we read, Philippians 1, 6, saying that the spirit that began the good work in regeneration will keep his work going until we meet God in judgment. Now, there are many more passages that we could go to that speak of the Spirit's work. And so either we have to deny that uh, what Christ says about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or we have to accept that assurance is possible for every person who is a believer. So the proof of assurance is from the Father's electing love before the foundation of the world. It's proved by the Holy Spirit's regeneration of the believer and his sanctifying work. But that's not all that we have. We still have another argument, and that is because of the work of Christ for the believer. You see, when you first trusted in Christ, you weren't done with him. Uh, Christ's work on the cross is not the end of what Christ does for our salvation. So there's also this persuasive fact of the Savior's pleading. Now, John's already made this argument in the second chapter, in verse number 1. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, of course, a Christian has to do everything that he can to stop sinning. If we sin continually, the Scripture says there is no evidence that we are actually children of God. Now, we don't have an excuse to sin, but the problem is that the nature, the human nature, the sinful nature is not completely eradicated at the point that you put your faith in Christ. And what happens to every single believer sometime or another, we are going to give in to that nature. And so what keeps us from losing our salvation when we go back and we live according to that old nature? Well, what keeps us saved is this other wonderful work that's provided that helps to maintain salvation. Christ intercedes before God's throne on our behalf. And he intercedes on the basis of his blood. His blood has covered all of our sins, and so God is satisfied. Now, this is what the second verse of 1 John 2 says. The first verse says we have an advocate, and the second verse says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, remember those messages that I preached on propitiation? What does the word mean? Well, the word actually means a mercy seat. It's referring to the very same thing as the seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and there is where they would would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice, and that lid, the mercy seat, covered up what was beneath it, or the articles that are held down inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the symbolism is that Christ is our mercy seat, and inside of the Ark of the Covenant was kept the tables of the law. And so Christ covers the law up. Propitiation means that Christ has satisfied God's wrath for sin. And so when we sin, after we're saved, Christ intercedes for us on the basis of his blood. Now, in the last message, we were looking at that great passage in Romans 8, and we were looking at verses 28 through 39, and we came to verse number 34, and I said, hold on to this thought because we're going to come back to it later. How many of you held on to the thought? Okay, I didn't think so. So we've got it again here. Romans 8, verse 34. It says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, 
yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So the Savior is pleading at the right hand of God. Now, I want you to listen to this great verse that we have in Hebrews. And this verse refers to Jesus as our high priest. And what does a high priest do, or what does a priest do? A priest intercedes on behalf of the people. A priest offers sacrifice to atone for sins. And the point of this passage in, in Hebrews 7 is to show us that Christ is greater than all priests that ever ever come before. All priests die. Uh, priest have to, every priest has to have somebody take his place at some time or another. Another sacrifice has to be made, then another, then another, then another. But Hebrews says something different about the great high priest, Jesus. It says, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. So Christ lives forever. He is the eternal God. Now, if I wanted to, I could have taken that passage of Scripture and used that for my Easter message. Why did Jesus arise from the grave? What, what, what is the purpose? Well, it's in order that he can make intercession for us before the throne of God. He guarantees our eternal salvation. And so Jesus did what no mere human priest could ever do. He offered himself. And he was the perfect sacrifice that was offered. And then he took his own life back in order that he might continue to intercede for us. Now, that's a marvelous truth. How, how could anybody say salvation can be lost? I mean, anybody that understands th- these passages couldn't say, well, you can't be sure you can go to heaven. Uh, you, you, you just can't know that. You can't know about your salvation. Well, we've just proved from the Trinity that you can know. The Father loves, the Father elects, the Spirit regenerates, and the Spirit performs, the Son sacrifices, and the Son intercedes, and those are all persuasive facts of assurance. But there's one more that I want to give you tonight. Thus far, the proof that I've shown you is from the side of God, God's side, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But is there any proof from your side of your eternal salvation? Well, in fact, there is. And our fourth point here is that the saved will persevere. Now, here's where the objections start to arise. And people say, well, yes, we are preserved, but we are not required to persevere. And they say the Bible teaches preservation, but it doesn't teach perseverance. And the ones that say that are those who have an axe to grind with the doctrines of grace. And so rather than to accept one of them or two of them, they just deny all of them. And that's understandable, because if you understand any of this, you know that all of it rises and falls together. So what are you going to do with the doctrine of perseverance? What what will you do with this? Well, in order to get rid of it, they misrepresent it. And they misrepresent our position concerning it. And they say, well, what you actually believe then, if you say that a Christian must persevere, then you believe that you are saved by your works. And I've said before that learned men and educators need to do their homework before they ever make statements like that. Because all they would ever need to do is read the historic Philadelphia Confession of Faith, or they could read some of their own confessions, because many of them use the very same thing that we use, the New Hampshire Confession of 1833, or better still, folks, they could read the Bible. 
and they could find it there. Are we required to persevere? Well, let me read to you again from the Philadelphia Confession, and this is the old confession that accurately states what Baptists through centuries have believed. It says, Those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon." Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and the love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity." Now, that's the quote from the Philadelphia Confession. But as you know, we don't build our doctrines on the confession of faith. The confession of faith has to be consistent with the Bible. So does the Bible teach that we must persevere? Well, let me just give you a few scriptures, and and you know this subject because we've covered this before. What does the Bible say? Does a Christian have to persevere. Well, this is what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-four thirteen. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. In Galatians 6, 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Hebrews three fourteen. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. James 1, 12 said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. In Revelation 2, 7, it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In Revelation 3, 21, it says, to him that overcometh will I sit or grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father on his throne. And those are all scriptures that teach perseverance. We must persevere in order to be saved. Perseverance is a means of grace in salvation. And if we could put this in the King James vernacular, we would say, how say ye that ye shall not persevere in the faith when this Holy Scripture saith you must persevere in the faith? Well, we could read the scriptures that I've just read, and what we would do is we would faint at those. And we would say, yes, then we will be lost because we don't have the ability to persevere. And that would be a right response if you misinterpret the doctrine, as many do. The assurance comes from the grace of perseverance. And what is that? Well, you go back to Philippians and you find this. You can read it in chapter 1, verse 6 again. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 13. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 2.13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
And then you can go to Jude and you can read about it. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. You can go back to the Apostle Paul and read again on the subject in Colossians chapter 1. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in, the holy, in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so for all of our disingenuous friends that misinterpret this doctrine, here is the answer to how you persevere. In fact, all of the foregoing arguments from the Trinity reinforce our ability to persevere. Do you have to? Well, yes, you have to. Will you? Yes, you will. You will persevere in the faith if you have once truly believed. Well, that consumes our time for tonight. It's possible to have assurance. It is possible to know that you are saved and you are on your way to heaven. And there may be problematic factors to overcome, but there are also many, many persuasive facts that show us that all of these problems have been conquered for a true believer in Christ. Now, next week, we're going to revisit this with one final message on the subject. And we're going to look at this verse again, and we're going to talk about your personal feelings of assurance. And there's some important things to talk about there as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word tonight. And thankful, Lord, that as Baptists, that you have revealed this truth to us and that our forefathers have stood strongly on this doctrine of assurance since the very beginning. And Lord, help us to to use your word to, to help prove this to others, to show them that Anybody that knows you as Savior can know infallibly that they are saved and on their way to heaven. You've given us that guarantee, and we thank you for it. Bless your people and and help us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.